So we have uh, three speakers today. We have Clarice Campbell, Tisa Romewas, and Adrian Budiman. And I think following Clarice's idea, Clarice, if you may, can introduce yourself. Yeah, I know that uh, technical issues can come up all the time when uh, it comes to Zoom and other platforms. So, Jang and Kawatiya, guys. Uh, my name is Clarice Campbell, and I work at the Victorian Government Trade and Investment Office in Jakarta, Indonesia, as the director of Tape Victoria for Southeast Asia. So, um, Victorian Tapes, which are government owned and supported, uh, operate here in Indonesia through our uh, VGTI. Um, and I represent them to find commercial opportunities here in Indonesia and also in other Southeast Asian countries. So, I've been doing this role for around two years. Um, and it's been really fulfilling so far to kind of be in the international education space between Australia and Indonesia and to see all of the wonderful uh, initiatives between the two countries. So, Victoria. Uh, Sorry, vocational education and training, of course, is uh, one of the top priorities for Pat Jokowi, um, especially in his second term. So it's something exciting that we've been able to assist with in terms of uh, trying to upskill the Indonesian workforce here in Indonesia. Um, there is some student recruitment that goes on, um, but uh, not through our office. And so we focus mostly on commercial opportunities where we can conduct, conduct training in Indonesia. Um, so that's the quick summary, and maybe I'll hand to Tisha. Thank you, Clarice. Hi, everyone. I'm Tisha Rumbewas. Um, uh, I am based in Jayapura, easternmost province of Indonesia, Papua. I work at Sago Foundation as the director. Um, our focus is on human resources development and research. So um, we uh, particularly choose the name Sagu because it, it is the staple food of Papuan people. But Sagu also stands for strengthening, assisting, generating, and utilizing for human resources development and research in Papua. Um, since uh, being established in 2015, we've conducted many programs and um, in, including uh, introducing uh, education and uh, overseas education and scholarships. And we provide English services such as um, English, uh, sorry, IELTS preparation course and also general English because we want to help people to pursue studying overseas. And um, I am also involved in the uh, ELTA program. So ELTA stands for English Language Training Assistance. This program is funded by DFAT, um, started in 2013. And I have many, uh, many of my students have um, um, actually graduated from Australia under the prestigious Australia Award Scholarships, of course. And I, I am proud to see uh, many of them are here today. Um, and I really encourage uh, them to also um, uh, introduce uh, education in Australia. Of course, um, it is one of the best in the world. And uh, like Clarice said before, that it is uh, one of the main um, um, aims by the by our our president to uh, increase the the quality of workforce in Indonesia and of course this is really a good opportunity for Indonesian students to pursue studying in Australia so that's for me handing over to pa Adrian my name is Adrian Budiman I am the res okay. current resident director of Achichis Achichis is an acronym for the Australian Consortium for In-Country Indonesian Studies uh, we are actually a consortium of 25 member universities and 10 host universities, uh, 23 being in Australia and two being in Europe. And we work together with uh, 10 host universities in Indonesia. 
so we were established back in 1994 uh, by Professor David Hill. Uh, the purpose, initial purpose really was to overcome the substantial academic, bureaucratic and immigration issues that had prevented Australian students to undertake credited semester study at Indonesian universities. So Achichis is uh, here to kind of assist with that and also to, uh, to minimize the risk of actually studying in Indonesia. So uh, this is, to 2020 is actually our 25th anniversary. And uh, we had been, we had hosted over 3,500 students come through our programs ever since our uh, inception. So uh, 2019 was our record year. We had 517 students that uh, we facilitated the study in Indonesia, which is a 21% increase from 2018. So uh, that's pretty much Achichis in brief. Thank you. That's really wonderful. And I'm sure there are plenty of people on the line tonight who can attest to the wonderful, wonderful institution that is a teacher and the extraordinarily far reaching impacts that the organization has. Thank you, Bye, Adrian. Thank you. Um, it feels timely since we're talking about a teacher to dive straight into our first topic of discussion, which is going to be around intercultural competency. Um, also known as cross-cultural learning, it's a soft skill and probably one of the most significant critical soft skills if you are going to be working in the international sphere. Um, I've straight in and like in your workplaces and how you instill those skills upon other people. Um, but Adrian, I might start with you again and then um, off to the other speakers. Okay, great. Well, uh, we at Achichis believe that an intercultural education really is an immersive experience, you know. So our, uh, you don't just, our students that go through our program is, I'm sure that uh, many of you have gone through, uh, don't just learn about Indonesia and its culture, but it's also the other, other soft skills, as you had stated, Bira, that really that they gain from the experience itself. For example, you know, problem solving, adaptability, and learning how to build your self-confidence uh, when going through your program. Uh, it's not an easy program. Uh, when people learn in a different country, apart from the obvious, which is everything is very different, you're learning in a very uh, unstructured uh, and education system, but there actually lies the rewards of going through the program, okay? Uh, it's very different than what you would experience back home. So we believe in the ecosystem, the holistic experience that people go through when they study in Indonesia. Uh, let me give a practical example. When you do an internship back home in Australia, for example, you know, it's going to be a completely different experience than if you go to Jakarta and then you intern at a law firm, you know. So uh, it's not, and it's, that's really where the challenges that you're going to be facing, which really is going to be very rewarding when you go through the program. Uh, Indonesia, for example, if you compare and contrast it to Australia or even any Western country, you know, like uh, Western cultures are extremely structured. Okay, there's a structure for everything. If you take away the structure, then a lot of people are lost because mm -hmm. the, it, it's a bit difficult to what, where am I supposed to learn about this? Where's the guide? Where's the guidelines for this? You know, while uh, Indonesians, on the other hand, are extremely unstructured. You know, if you ask an Indonesian 
how to get a driver's license. If you ask three Indonesians, you'll get three different ways of getting a driver's license. You know, there's really no <laughs> one correct way to do it successfully. You know, there are guidelines that's published by the, by the police and so on, but it's not going to be easy to get it if you just follow it step by step. Uh, while on the other hand, you know, if you go to Australia, everything is already there. It's all written. And if you go through the processes, you'll eventually get a driver's license. So that's where we believe that the, uh, the, the rewards of going through an international intercultural experience are uh, learning about these systems because not everything is like what you experienced back home. And, uh, and I think that that's very important uh, to emphasize that. Yeah. Absolutely. Tisha, I might throw Thank you, Mira. Um, so in my office, uh, if we talk about intercultural education, um, the term that comes up with it is contextual learning. And since I am also an ELSA master trainer, this is very important because we are introducing something, um, uh, one may say a foreign um, idea of um, academic English tested in a very strict environment to our students. And um, I, um, I probably could say that our um, uh, the, the English uh, lessons in our primary schools not really support students to be successful in IELTS test at their first attempt. So programs that Australia provide, like uh, such as ELTA, really help uh, potential uh, students from Indonesia to really ace the test. And I think um, ELTA program really provides a, a, a very structured and very um, um, specifically designed uh, course content that really helps students to um, um, achieve the tar target score of um, I'll, I'll score 5.0 within just three months. And uh, one of the, uh, the key points to uh, help students is to incorporate co contextual learning into the classroom, into the environment, so that they understand uh, quickly within three months time, they can really achieve the score. And um, so that is uh, what comes in my mind when we talk about intercultural education and in, in the scope of my, uh, my organization, what we do in, in our office every day. And I also agree with what pa Adrian said before. Um, it's about cross-cultural studies. Uh, we have to introduce to our students uh, to recognize the culture uh, of the country that they're about to go. Uh, and so when they are in Rome, they do as Romans do. Uh, and avoid um, problems, etc. cetera. <laughs> uh, yeah, and to uh, be successful, especially in academic life. Yeah, um, so, uh, and in my personal opinion, a success in intercultural education will lead to a strong bilateral relationship, uh, not only between countries, but also between communities. That's from me, Mira, thank you. Um, Clarice, we'll jump to you in a sec, but Tisha, I was wondering if you could um, provide an example at all of ways in which um, materials can be ad adapted to better incorporate culturally relevant uh, examples or exercises. 
Oh, yes. Um, I would say that uh, in my experience teaching ELTA, probably one of the challenges is introducing writing class one to students because, um, as Padrian said, um, that uh, in Indonesia, things are not really well structured for everyone. So uh, for students to really see a graph and then they have to describe it in um, 10, 20 minutes is really a challenge. Um, so to help students to really do the, the, the task uh, within 20 minutes, what we need to do as trainer, uh, as trainers is um, we introduce the graph step-by-step uh, step since the beginning of the program. And we start with things that students are familiar with. For example, number of students in class and then um, number of students who ride bikes to uh, school. And we start with more um, significant things. For example, see the uh, literacy rate um, in Papua and we compare with, uh, with, with literacy rate in Indonesia. So um, it's really the way we introduce this concept uh, of elaborating what they see on graph to uh, and write it on their um, writing task, uh, writing answer sheet. Um, um, with my experience teaching Elta, I find ways to really introduce this to students. Yeah, so I think that is a, a practical example that I can give to you. Um, so that's just one uh, skill uh, test in uh, Elta and other, other skills as well. So yeah, that's one of my experience. That's fantastic, thank you. Clarice, learning or, or teaching intercultural competency? Yeah, um, it's a big thing for us at Tape Victoria. So one of the, I guess, fascinating parts of the delivery that we do is that we try to do it mostly in Indonesia because we understand that not everybody has the capability to come and study in Australia, as you would all know studying a full degree or even a diploma, a vocational certificate is a very expensive um, you know, pathway for a lot of people and in fact inaccessible by many Indonesians. And one of the aims that we have is to try and bring Australian education, Victorian education to Indonesia in order to upskill um, you know, and achieve the goals that the Indonesian government is trying to achieve. A huge part of that, of course, is building intercultural competencies within the students that we're teaching and training. We do this through actually training a lot of the teachers themselves so that um, for many of the courses, we're not actually utilizing, you know, Victorian teachers. We're giving teachers in Indonesia the cultural competencies to go on and teach students in Indonesia um, using Australian qualifications or Australian standards. And so far for us, that's been a really successful way of trying to build intercultural competencies because there are lots of units and components within the courses that we facilitate where we adapt to not only, you know, what is the uh, client in Indonesia looking for, but bringing in aspects of, you know, how do we teach in Australia and how can you then develop that for your classrooms. Um, it's very difficult to deliver, you know, an Australian um, standard course using Australian qualifications um, and it's actually a much more expensive um, pathway and instead we tried to use uh, kind of Tate Victoria endorsed courses or non-accredited courses in order to adapt it so that we don't have to always stick to you know yellow uh, you know 
wire goes into yellow hole before doing electrical training. Um, it may not be like that in, in Indonesia. It's, it's probably very different. In fact, it is very different. Um, so there are aspects that we take out of courses in order to adapt them better to the, to the Indonesian market. And it makes it a lot more applicable for students who are undertaking our courses across a range of sectors. And we develop and deliver courses in built from anything from building and uh, building and construction to hospitality, to ICT, to transport and logistics, uh, English language. So there's a range of things that we have to consider, but we find ways um, to, to develop you know, units that assist with that intercultural competence. And of course, from time to time, um, when, when we can, where it's necessary, we do bring people down to, to Victoria to undertake, you know, internships and, and placements and things like that in order to get, you know, real experiences in Australia. Because at the end of the day, everybody likes to, to come down to, to Victoria and to Melbourne to see what it's like. It's obviously very different to their workplaces here in Indonesia and that can be a real added benefit. So they're just a couple of ways that we kind of try and build in intercultural competency components into our courses. Mm. Fantastic. Let's get into the nitty gritty and talk a little bit about the barriers to intercultural learning because, I mean, first of all, the, the obvious one that springs to mind is COVID-19. We're no longer traveling between our two countries. And so that, complete lack of mobility is going to, to really change the way that we interact, but also um, the willingness of our governments to, to, to really encourage development of those people-to-people -people links and strong understanding of each other's countries. We see a lot of rhetoric. Um, we see a lot of enthusiasm for trade deals, like the one that has recently come into force, but is there really any deeper commitment to, I suppose, fostering that long and sustained intercultural understanding of each other? Um, I guess that question is twofold. <laughs> the barrier of mobility and uh, whether or not there is genuine enthusiasm. So Clarice, I might start with you again and then uh, we can circle back around. Yeah, I mean, look, naturally, COVID is a bit of a spanner in the works for everyone, and that's just hit everybody in all aspects of life. Um, but there are ways around it. Um, and of course, at least from a vocational education standpoint, you know, a lot of the institutions have adapted to blending, blended learning uh, approaches where they conduct a lot of the training online, but it's sort of face to face in that you have a trainer on one end and then the class, you know, interacting on the other rather than you know pre-recording um, a session and then you know sticking it up on YouTube where students just sort of watch it back. It's a lot more interactive than that because vocational uh, education and training has to be more practical. It's, it's more hands-on and there are of course barriers in that if you're undertaking a welding certificate um, you can't have a trainer from Tafe Victoria from, from Australia actually look at the welding that you're doing. Um, you know, there's no way for them to transport themselves to, to that facility in Indonesia. And so that's certainly a barrier. Um, there have been, I guess, a lot of delays uh, within the industry in terms of being able to assess um, those sorts of components where it really is necessary that there is a practical um, assessment and that there's a person physically in the room. And unfortunately, that's just how it is at the moment. Um, but, you know, a way around that as well is developing up uh, enough teachers who have the capability and the capacity here in Indonesia where they can travel domestically 
to be able to go and assess that. Um, and that's an approach that Tate Victoria has definitely um, wanted to do in Indonesia and is doing in Indonesia. Um, and we hope that that's a way around our sort of COVID world where international travel isn't necessarily uh, easy to do. Um, and at least for the foreseeable future, it's sort of on hold. Uh, to the question on, you know, whether there's genuine commitment, um, I'd say there definitely is genuine commitment. Otherwise, uh, Australian education providers wouldn't really be bothering with Indonesia. Um, and the same for Indonesian international students. There are over, you know, 17,000 in all of Australia and over 7,000 in Victoria who choose Australia as their study destination every year. So there's genuine commitment from both sides to try and, you know, work with each other and learn from each other. Uh, can it be improved? Absolutely. There's always room for improvement. You know, we're two neighbours. Uh, Indonesia is a pretty big country and there's a lot of people here who would benefit greatly from, you know, having an Australian education or Australian standard education. Um, and there's, there's certainly ways that we can improve that, whether that's through student mobility, whether that's through more scholarships, um, you know, ways to deliver a more online education here in Indonesia using blended learning approach. Um, there's all kinds of things that we can do, but I think there's certainly commitment and at the state government level, you know, there's sister states between a lot of the Australian states and Indonesian provinces. So Victoria with Yogyakarta, Western Australia with East Java and so on. Um, and through those initiatives, there's, there's lots of ways that um, Australia and Indonesia work with each other and, and we can only just try and push for more of that. Good to hear, positive spin. Um, but Adrian. All right. Uh, well, I think, I think that pretty much sums it up. You know, I think the, the obvious barriers, barriers would be the, the, the travel restrictions that has uh, uh, been implemented in both of our countries, Indonesia and Australia. Uh, I can draw from experience early this year when, when COVID-19 hit and uh, we were, I think Australia, the DFAT just issued a level three, has it escalated to level four yet? Uh, our, our reference group, which is basically representatives from each of the member universities, has decided that it was uh, time to cancel the programs and make sure that all of the students who are participating early this year uh, were safely returned back to their home countries, whether Australia or other countries. So uh, during that time, uh, the biggest barrier that we were facing at that time was uh, how are we going to continue the programs that have been uh, progressing halfway throughout the semester. Mm. And, uh, and of course, you know, a lot of Indonesian universities went to the virtual realm, uh, which is great, but they've never done this before. This is something which is very new to them. Uh, many of the professors back at the universities over here have only seen Zoom once or something like that, which is when, which, when, when they were required to use it. So I guess the number, number one would be the technological aspect of it would be, this is gonna be very difficult for us to, uh, to be able to link people to people between two countries. But another thing also is that when you deliver programs online, from an Achichi's point of view, the immediate barrier really is you lose the ecosystem that encompasses the learning experience. Okay, because uh, as I said earlier, you know, I think we believe in the immersive holistic experience when people study overseas. Uh, and if it's you're just receiving the core product, when you're just receiving the education, the classes, the online delivery of the classes, you're losing the time that we, where you can actually make 
practical people-to-people -people connections with Indonesians. You lose the late night, you know, ordering a bus on the side of the road and hanging out with the friends over here and then establishing those connections. Uh, so that's, that really hit us hard. And, I, and, I, and we believe that you're losing a big portion of the experience of the Achichi's experience uh, if you start delivering programs virtually. Uh, apart from that also, the competence as well from, from, uh, member, sorry, from host universities that are running programs in Indonesia, as I said, you know, they, this is something that they've never, they've never done before. And uh, it's not as simple as, you know, shooting a video of you delivering a lecture, you know, and recording it online and people are just viewing it, you know, it's not that easy, you know, there's, there's ways that we can, that, that there's, in fact, you know, there's academic fields dedicated to uh, successfully deliver a program through a medium, you know, it's not, 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 not directly and things like that. And uh, this, I believe, is improving, of course, but it's has, it, once it, this really kind of caught a lot of Indonesians off guard, a lot of academic higher institutions actually caught off guard, and they were not just simply not prepared for that. So uh, moving forward, you know, and I think I'll, I'll cover this in the, in the other discussion topics, but uh, we're trying to tweak that experience to see how we can, how we can simulate an immersive experience in a virtual realm. And I think that's, that's an important way that we can move forward while travel restrictions are still in place and we are just not able to, to do mutual visits between countries. Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to the um, possible opportunities and solutions, but Tisha, how, yeah, dive straight in. <laughs> Thanks, Mira. So um, I agree with all the points made by Clarice and by Adrian. I think it sums up almost everything. Uh, if we uh, talk about barriers uh, in education sectors uh, these days. Um, so uh, basically, I'm just repeating, I guess. So it's just like limitation to move from one place to another. And um, also digital literacy. I see um, this is one of the problems that we have here in um, uh, especially uh, eastern part of Indonesia. Um, it's with the familiarity with available apps uh, for online meetings, classes, webinars, etc. Um, so um, I think while the world is still struggling to increase um, literacy rates, other types of um, literacy rates, uh, now COVID-19 is like forcing us to also think about digital literacy. So um, it used to be something that is um, considered luxury, but because of what's happening to the world nowadays, we are forced to think that digital literacy is a necessity. And I think um, um, not many governments are ready with uh, this, and especially for us in the eastern part of Indonesia, uh, the challenges um, are, of course, uh, facilities uh, like internet access and then affordable data plan for students and also the, um, the gadgets. Uh, so the mobile phones and the laptops, it, it is still considered um, uh, luxury here. So how can we facilitate learning if uh, these items are, are still considered uh, luxury? So I think that is uh, one of the major problems here that we see in uh, especially eastern part of Indonesia. Mm. 
What are some of the particular ways that um, that Sagu Foundation or through your work at Alta have you adapted to the current situation? Oh yeah, uh, so regarding my office, oh, so I think we uh, do what everyone is currently doing. So work from home is really encouraged. And um, we also uh, are developing uh, online learning system. So it is difficult as Padrian said that um, there is a, a, like experience when you teach when you teach students in class and when you teach them online, it's a, very, a totally different learning experience, especially for students. So uh, we are adapting and we are currently developing our online learning system. And um, we also try to do seminars online. Uh, we've had a few seminars that we've conducted online. And I think um, I, that's what uh, SAGU is currently do, uh, doing. And uh, in terms of ELTA program, um, it, unfortunately, it's being postponed. So we won't have any ELTA uh, program this year, but hopefully next year we will have one. Thank mm. you, Mira. No worries. Um, but Adrian, as you said before, there is just no way that um, that you can replace the experience of of learning in country. What are what do you see as some of the opportunities or solutions moving forward for our teachers? Well, one of the biggest challenges, really, I mean, there are components of our programs, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, Mira, is that uh, it's the academic portion, you know, the the online classes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The the lectures, the discussions, I mean, all of that is, is possible to replicate in a virtual realm. Uh, however, there are portions of the program that are not as easy to replicate for example like field trips you know that's something which is very immersive it's very experiential meaning mm -hmm. that you you have to be able to engage with the with the environment you have to be able to talk with people at the at the location and things like that so uh again it's it's, it's it would be easy sell to just say okay let's make a virtual field trip you know have someone with a webcam and then come through uh which is not going to be anywhere close to an experience that you usually get when you're studying in country, but uh, it's ways to kind of simulate specific components of that, that can uh, try to replicate a real life interactive experience. For example, like uh, interviews with the residents in a specific location, all of that can be included, incorporated inside the program itself. Uh, and also having a buddy system, you know, someone where you can chat informally, not in a formal setting, but someone that you can always engage with, talk to, uh, discuss with. All of that, I think, would uh, kind of enhance the experience that you have uh, if you were, as if it were, you were in a in a specific location as well. So we're still working out and and. Are you there, Pat? Hello? Hi, yeah, sorry. I, I'm, we I'm sorry, my, yeah, my internet's not, <laughs> not too stable at the moment. Not too uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not sure how much of that you caught, but uh, I'll, yeah, I think, I think. Last minute or two. 
Okay, so yeah, I think I think there are several ways that we're trying to simulate and we're trying to test and also trying to set uh, best practices guidelines uh, of how we're going to provide programs that would be similarly engaging to students and try to replicate as much as possible the, the real life experience. Mm. Yeah. Virtual reality, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, Clarice, did you have anything further that you wanted to add on the topic? Yeah, look, it's, it's a hard one. Um, you know, you do lose a lot of that really kind of invaluable, you know, personal experiences that you have on the side of the road if you're, you know, traveling in country. Um, and it's unfortunate for us that our students that we are, um, you know, teaching here in Indonesia don't have that opportunity to go and experience that in Australia. Um, it's something that they always look forward to and, you know, it's a big sort of part of the program. I guess alternatives for us have been, we do actually use some virtual reality. Um, we do have, I guess, videos of experiences that they can, can do in Victoria. And that's actually, um, you know, ed tech is a big thing uh, that we're trying to push for people to kind of explore and, and using that as something where while you might be in Jakarta or you're in another city in Southeast Asia, you can put on a pair of goggles or watch a video where you do sort of feel like you're in, in that place. And, you know, that's, that's something that there are many companies um, who are trying to kind of, you know, trial these, these experiences. Um, and it's something to think about where travel may not be possible for, you know, a little while. And uh, Australia and Indonesia obviously have very different approaches to the coronavirus situation. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions hanging around, you know, when will people be able to travel to Indonesia and when will, you know, Indonesians be able to travel to Australia? And at the time being, there's no clear cut answer. And, you know, it's, there's, no, there's no date um, for that. So how do we you know, diversify those experiences and, and try and bring Indonesia to Australia and Australia to Indonesia. And that could be, you know, one, one uh, genuine way of, of doing that. Because without it, really, um, it's reading blogs, blogs on the internet and uh, looking at photos online. Um, it, is, it is a really, really tough one. But virtual reality is something that we have actually explored um, and we intend to explore more. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I was just throwing it out there. <laughs> That's great. Um, we have just a couple more questions uh, as a core part of this panel, but I would just like to encourage anyone in the audience, if you have any questions at all, whether you're joining us in our Zoom meeting or if you're watching from our Facebook live stream, write your questions down and we'll come to those very soon. Um, I suppose Clarice you touched on this very briefly before about um, intercultural understanding cross-cultural learning between Australia and Indonesia and how there's always room for improvement what are those mechanisms through which we can improve our people-to-people -people links and our relationships yeah tough one again um look <laughs> Whether it's through education, uh, you know, institutions connecting with, with one another, you know, universities and vocational education institutions should really have international partners. And if they don't, that's something that they should be really considering because we are all operating in a, a global environment. And it's, it's, if a student does study at a, you know, a polytechnic here in Indonesia, it would be a shame if they had no exposure to other education systems and, and people from other countries, whether that's just through a, you know, a 
you know, a lecturer coming in to, to have a chat to the class or that's, you know, a genuine exchange experience. Um, I think it's really valuable and that's at all levels of, of education, um, you know, from primary school through to higher education. Um, there's always that emphasis on, you know, you do a uni degree and you go on exchange for a semester or something, but that's actually not majority of, of, of people. That's a small minority of, of people who have that ability to go and actually study and live overseas. Um, so there's certainly ways that we can, you know, look at improving that. And of course, whether you're involved in other sort of extracurricular um, things where you can engage with Australia and Indonesia, that would, you know, that's another alternative to that. Of course, we need each government to, you know, always have a focus on one another. You know, we're, we're neighbours at the end of the day. Um, and if, if the Australian government and Indonesian governments and the state and provincial governments don't have their eyes set on, on the other country, um, that, you know, there's, they're really missing opportunities there. I mean, the good thing is that they're increasingly acknowledging that. Uh, so earlier this year, for example, you know, Part Read One Kamil came down to Melbourne and, and there's um, increasing cooperation at an economic level between Victoria and West Java, just as one example, and that should lead on to further, you know, education experiences um, between the two countries and between Bandung and Melbourne. Uh, but that can be expanded. There are, you know, hundreds of cities in Indonesia and, and many states and territories in Australia. So looking at, at ways to further that and deepen that cooperation uh, rather than, you know, just sign, signing an MOU to say that, yes, we're sister states or sister cities or, or something like that, or, you know, X institutions will work together. Um, do that, but, you know, make sure that there's actually an outcome from that. Um, and so I think we can always lobby for our institutions to constantly engage with the other country and, and see what the opportunities are for students. Mm, beautiful. Tisha, what do you think about strengthening Australia's ties with Eastern Indonesia? Um, yeah, uh, so uh, I see uh, that the Australian government uh, see uh, have seen the, the uh, eastern part of Indonesia as something important. This is proven through, um, you know, the the uh, consulate general in, in Makassar uh, was built a few years ago, and I think it was um, uh, by Julie Gillard, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, I see how um, uh, Australia see the eastern part of Indonesia as important uh, part, and. Um, and also that um, I really uh, appreciate that Kozindi really embraced this and we had our um, conference in Makassar in 2018. Uh, so it was really a good opportunity for me to really uh, to, to meet with uh, Pak Konjen and um, also uh, my fellow Kozindi uh, um, uh, friends, of course. Uh, and. Um, I think uh, what uh, both countries can do is really to promote equity in education, especially in Eastern part of Indonesia. Um, because if we, um, and, and now that COVID-19 is happening, I think one of the things that COVID-19 reveals is the, uh, the inequality of education, uh, especially in Indonesia. And this is very true for us here in Eastern part of Indonesia. And I think uh, uh, I would personally love to see from both governments to really uh, uh, promote programs to really help us in eastern part of Indonesia to really catch up with um, uh, other parts of uh, Indonesia. So yeah, um, that's what I see from, um, thank you Mira.
Mm, no worries. That was such a nice conference. I loved that one. <laughs> I just noticed that I'm a little bit lopsided. Um, but Adrian, to you. Are we still on the same topic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those resilient ties. And I wonder um, whether touching on language learning in Australia and, and Indonesia is something uh, that really feeds into that. Yeah. Uh, I remember that I once attended a uh, a conference where Julie Bishop was speaking in Surabaya at that time. She was visiting uh, Eastern Java and uh, she once said that the world will not come to Australia. So Australia has to come to the world, meaning that, you know, fan out and learn about the world basically globally. And, uh, and we kind of like combine that with, with the saying in Indonesia, which is tak kenal maka tak sayang. You know, it means that if you if you don't if you don't recognize or you're not you're not familiar with with something, then there's no way that you're going to uh, uh, be fond of it. You know, so I think uh, those those two concepts is really the foundation of immersive international programming. You know, I think that would be the probably the best way to kind of like uh, provide a more resilient intercultural competency within within any country you know not necessarily just australia or indonesia but i think that would be the essence of why we actually do these things so uh yeah and at at the moment you know now that even though we we are not able to travel it doesn't mean that that's that's sort of like that's a dead end you know there's many things that can be done within everybody's own realm uh mm there's lots of cultural artifacts in your own hometown that it just takes, you know, as a student, for example, you know, have a, have a small chat with the shy international student in your class, you know, just mm -hmm. learn to know about them, learn about their culture. Those little things I think is a beginning. And then perhaps if you're more interested, you know, learn more about their country. Uh, many things can be done, you know, even in Melbourne itself, you know, there's, there's just so many different, areas of Melbourne, which is very cultural, uh, rich with culture, you know, I know that there's a Vietnamese area, there's a Chinatown, there's so many things, you know, uh, don't just go there to buy takeout, you know, to get to know some of the people, you know, understand a little bit more of their culture, all of this, I think, really kind of feeds into your global awareness, your, your cultural competency towards the world, really. So yeah, those are, I think, the, the things that I think would be uh, very helpful for, especially for the young generation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tapping into the <laughs> diaspora communities that we have in our own yeah. hometown. Yeah, couldn't be more important. Clarice, you're ah, on yeah. I was going to jump in and say um, that definitely, you know, as a student of Indonesian studies for a very long time, you don't always have the opportunity to travel to Indonesia. And I, I certainly didn't have that opportunity for a, a long time when I started studying Indonesian. Um, but if you utilize the Indonesian community where you are, you will learn a lot. Um, it's unfortunate that Indonesian studies is constantly in decline in Australia. And for that, I have no genuine answer as to why. For me, I find it a bit baffling. 
Um, but you know, last last year um, or this year, Michelle Collar released a, a journal on on Indonesian studies in Australia, and the statistics from last year were quite bleak. Uh, there are around 350 Year 12 students across Australia who were doing Indonesian studies. Um, and 250 of those were in Victoria. So there's only 100 in all of the other states around Australia, which is um, extremely low. And we've seen also that Indonesian studies faculties at universities are really struggling because of that. They need to have uh, intermediate and beginner students to, to go in who then work their way up the levels. Um, and there are a few obvious universities that people do go to for Indonesian studies, and that's really great, such as Monash University and Melbourne University, University of Sydney. Um, but there are certainly universities that have had to close down their Indonesian and, and Malay studies faculties over the years. Um, and that's a real shame for, for us as Australians. You know, We need that ability to be able to study about Indonesia in all kinds of different ways. Um, so having those uh, available to us is, is certainly crucial. So there's, there's certain, certainly efforts that can be done. But if you are a student of, of Indonesian language in Australia uh, and traveling to Indonesia isn't available for you at this time, engage with diaspora uh, in, in, in Australia. It helped me a lot, whether it's through going to consulate events or doing online dance classes or, or anything, coming to AYA, joining our flexible language exchange, things like that. Um, there's ways to, to engage with people and, and take up that opportunity in order to, to continue your studies. This might be putting you on the spot. It definitely is. And so I apologize. Um, but if you feel comfortable, could you briefly run us through your thesis? Oh, my thesis. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> feels like so long ago, actually. Uh, yeah, I did Indonesian studies and linguistics at Monash University. Um, and in 2016, I undertook my honours uh, in Indonesian linguistics. So I looked at uh, applicative suffix kan, uh, for any of you who knows what it is. Uh, and I think when, when you start studying Indonesian, the thing that really trips uh, English speakers up is actually all of the affixes. You, know, you don't know where to put what and why. Um, and there's all kinds of things, de, me, kan, me, i, ter, per, and so on. Um, and that's really when you do come to Indonesia, the thing that kind of, you know, throws you to the side and, and trying to learn how to figure that out. But I, I looked at kan and I did an in-depth uh, kind of study of that. Uh, so you can read it. I think it's on the Monash website somewhere on the Monash library. Uh, or you can always contact me and I can send it to you. Um, and I actually did start doing my PhD in Indonesian linguistics when I finished my honours year. But because I actually started working full time in Jakarta, um, I have postponed that for now because as much as I, I loved uh, studying, I, I thought I would get a lot more out of, of coming to Indonesia and living in Indonesia for a certain amount of time. And, it's been extremely beneficial for me to be able to be an Indonesian studies student and then actually use those skills, come and work in Indonesia. Um, so there is hope and there's light at the end of the tunnel for, for those of you who are Indonesian studies students. <laughs> um, thank you. Thanks for hearing <laughs> It's a extremely niche topic. Um, so if anyone's like, oh my God, why did she do that? Uh, <laughs> there's not many of us doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do have a couple of questions um, filtering through, guys. The first one is from Harry in Papua. 
lately it's a little bit hard for me to teach my students in Papua related to subjects which need to have a practical or, or, or ground activity. Do you know how to make easily delivering our knowledge without having misinformation or miscommunications between teachers and students using the online platform? I might begin with you, Tisha. Um, first off, I'm going to say hi to Harry. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Harry. Uh, I see that you are having challenges now. Um, I would say that now is not really the time to say which one is the best platform because we are all are still we are all still trying to figure out which is the best platform and I think through trial and error uh, as a teacher you can try all kinds of methods that you can find um, maybe uh, you can find information from YouTube or other uh, sources and you can start using all of them and see which one actually suits uh, your need and your students needs of course and um, yeah, um, like I mentioned before, digital literacy is one of the problems that we have here in Eastern part of Indonesia, and it's really um, decreasing um, the 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 I would say the motivation of. of, of from our students to learn because um, they are uh, not only um, they they not not only that they have to engage with the materials now they have to learn about the platforms as well so uh two challenges that they have to face at the same time and i think this is what harry uh, uh meant in, in his question uh, i think uh for me what i i could say to harry is just be patient um be uh um be open to all um information that you can find and try them all and uh discuss this with your students as well be open with your students and discuss possibilities uh platform available platforms that you can use together uh sometimes uh, maybe uh, the platform that you select, uh, you find it, um, uh, it is comfortable for you, but not really comfortable for your students. So I think it's very wise for all teachers to really consider what the students want and what the students think uh, comfortable when they learn. So. Thank you. Um, the next one I might uh, flick to by Adrian. So, from Anonymous, what can we learn from the COVID era in terms of strengthening the way we engage with one another? Despite all of the challenges, what strengths or lessons can we take away from this? Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's not an easy question, really. It's, uh, I guess, one, one way that, that we face as an organization in dealing with COVID really is uh, not just look at the barriers, sometimes look at the opportunities that 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 kind of emerge from having a, a situation like COVID, you know. Uh, for example, there's, we always have struggled in the past to uh, working out schedules. So let's say, for example, an internship can fit nicely between two semesters or something like that. While, because they, the student will eventually have to go back home and then have to re-enroll inside classes and so on like that. Uh, while having a situation in which we're delivering programs virtually, uh, then we have the flexibility to kind of extend that internship a little bit further or maybe have a little later admission period. So we do, because we don't have to work with immigration visas and all that and allow for more applicants to apply for programs. You know, So we're looking at all these different areas in which 
all of a sudden opened up to us that that hasn't been done in the past you know because people are not traveling and uh, there's a lot of issues related to international travel uh, which now we can bypass and we can take advantage of the virtual platform uh, another way also as earlier uh, I had stated that we're trying to simulate as as best as possible the interactive immersive experience and uh, so we kind of look like not just the formal part of it, but also the informal part of it, you know, having, having students engage with buddies, for example, you know, having them uh, know other people informally. Uh, I think that's also an important, a very important part of the, of, the, of the cultural experience when traveling internationally. So all of these things uh, that we've never thought about suddenly has opened up to us and appeared. And we just try to make the best of it at the moment, you know, but I think, as an organization, you, we just, we just can't give up. You know, we just have to keep on trying our best to adapt to the situation. Pretty much how our students had done when they were in Indonesia. They tried to adapt with the situation, and now we're adapting to a very uh, global pandemic. You know, I think it's very similar in that sense. Mm, mm. Um, beautiful. Ah. Here's another doozy. <laughs> in terms of online learning, many parents have complained to teachers because they have to assist their children in learning, especially for those students who are in elementary school. Those parents commonly have no, no or lower educational background, so they don't understand certain topics or subject matter. What do you think teachers should do to help them? Leaving this one open to the floor. I can try and answer. Um, I guess in the vocational space, uh, while we mostly deal with sort of senior high school students or those who have graduated and are sort of in their, you know, such a phase, um, it is hard and digital literacy isn't, not everybody has that same standard. Um, it, even if I think of my dad, for example, he wouldn't know how to join Zoom. So I can understand there are people in both countries who are really struggling with this sort of transition to online education. Um, it does take quite a lot of effort and you can really be zoomed out at the end of the day, you know, when you are looking at a screen all day. How to get uh, parents to help during this time. I mean, teachers do have to, I guess, assess all of their students and see how they're getting online and uh, if they're interacting. I have heard of, you know, there are really good positive stories that have come out of this where students who were in face-to-face -face classes and who were a little bit shy, you know, or who didn't engage with their classwork um, in a classroom setting have actually thrived a lot of the time when they are in this online setting because it's a different sort of world, uh, which is really great. So, you know, we do have to think of the positives in this. Um, there are various sessions as well where if parents are really struggling to adapt to this sort of online uh, approach, you know, they can undertake their own classes and upskill parents to to deal with how how their how their children are, are, are learning now um, but understandably it's extremely stressful for everybody involved whether it's the student the parent or the teacher um, so there's there's you know it's a multifaceted uh, issue but there is support out there depending on you know how you can access it 
Um, it's really just going out there to, to sort of seek it. Um, but still, it's going back to Tisha's point of not everybody has access to certain devices and, and internet problems and just general digital literacy. Tisha, as you support um, students going through their scholarship applications and their English language training and all of the other um, aspects that you do, do, does that extend to supporting parents as well? Um, yes, definitely. Um, I think it's very important to introduce this to parents. Um, uh, and the, uh, I, I could say that um, now it's, it, it has becoming uh, it has become more important for our government to really uh, discuss this uh, seriously and consider this as a uh, uh, one of the um, important issues to be addressed as soon as possible because um, if uh, they don't consider this uh, like um, the involvement uh, of parents in education especially online um, learning uh, then we uh, will not able to help our students um, to really achieve their uh, potentials. Um, and um, maybe um, with uh, scholarship hunters, uh, because they are expected to um, uh, fulfill, uh, to submit online application. So uh, it would not be a, a much of a problem for them. Uh, and um, uh, maybe with um, uh, when they uh, already receive the application and then they have to uh, travel to Australia uh, and uh, learning how uh, in Australian education system everything is structured. So you go on Moodle and you see um, everything, you see your schedule, you see uh, the names of your lecturers and the assignments, etc. the deadlines especially. Uh, I think this is the most important part that we have to introduce to our students. Um, and I, I see the experience of my students who are currently studying at ILF Bali in preparation to um, study in Australia. So they are doing um, uh, English for academic purposes. Um, uh, I think uh, they are currently adapting to the new system, uh, or online learning system at, at ILF Bali. So usually they have classes, um, regular classes, and now they have to do it online. So it's a huge difference from them, uh, for them, sorry. And um, I think uh, my students are um, adapting very well. Uh, I follow them on Instagram and I see how they are adapting because as a teacher, it, I think it's important for me to really engage to my students and uh, what I see from uh, the way they adapt to this, uh, to, to the new system really helps me to um, project and to design what I should do here in Papua, so. Mm, fantastic. Um, we are approaching that time. We have one more question, which I'll get to, but uh, after that, I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to also talk about places where the audience can go to learn more, um, whether it's to engage with uh, other organisations that you're a part of or to support different initiatives or anything at all. I'll give you guys a moment to um, to plug that in a second. The last question I think is something that each of you will be able to speak to in different ways. Um, so in Australia, oh, this is from John. Thanks, John. In Australia, when students go back to school, what are the kinds of things that students need to adjust 
uh, with a new environment after staying longer at home and study from home. Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm happy for each of you to answer that. I suppose that I'm interested in knowing, building off of that question slightly, uh, what are those kind of repatriation experiences or difficulties or um, kind of uh, almost reverse culture shock that students go through, whether in Australia or Indonesia? Maybe by Adrian, shall we start with you? Yeah, wow. Uh, well, I guess being a parent of a daughter who's right now taking online courses as well, you know, I think uh, I can only see that, you know, like when, when the situation has improved and, and uh, students are able to return back to the university, you know, apart from getting her out of bed early, you know, I think, I think there's also other challenges that kind of like go with the territory. But first of all, I just, I don't think really that we need to, we need to really uh, remove ourselves from the online learning experience because that could really enhance the the way that that uh, lessons are being delivered in any situation, you know. But I think what they're missing really from the sort of like the physical classroom style conventional uh, classes is that is really about the community, you know, the being able to engage with other students and discuss assignments with them. And, and I think that really doesn't really need really a lot of adjustment back into, you know, I think it just comes naturally, you know, to, to kind of reintegrate ourselves back into the school learning community mm -hmm. uh, and, and retain it, you know, retain the, the online courses if possible, you know, like, I think, I think that's something which, which needs to be developed further. I think that will be very, very beneficial because it could allow other opportunities like I mentioned earlier and also kind of distance learning, all of that is all of a sudden opens up, you know, with, with uh, situations like we had experienced during the COVID-19. So, yeah, uh, I guess, I guess, you know, there's apart from just reintegrating ourselves with the society, I think it just, it just takes, it, it takes, you just have to dive in really. <laughs> I think that's, that's, I, I don't have any other better tips. I wish I did. But again, it's something that I think all of us are still really not sure how it's going to how it's going to be implemented. I think, yeah. Um, we have had one last question come through, and I know I said that last time, but I promise this is the last one. Um, how does the panel view the plan to open or to? to provide opportunities for Australian campuses to start operating in Indonesia as a result of the recent coming into force of the IHEPA? Yeah, maybe I can take that one. Um, so yeah, we all know that Monash University will open in Indonesia and they're a Victorian university. Um, and it's really obviously wonderful that Monash will be doing that. They will be uh, offering postgraduate uh, courses here in Indonesia, so not undergraduate. Um, and that's for a range of reasons. But I, I think overall it's a good indication that Australia and Indonesia are working together, uh, you know, through education. And it's, you know, obviously very favourable for those Indonesian students who were looking for an Australian education who may not be able to travel to Australia. 
So this is obviously going to benefit those students who, um, where you know, where it's unavailable for them to 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 go and live in Australia. As I said before, it's extra, you know, very expensive to to live in Australia. So this can provide an alternative um, for those students. And I think, you know, going back to the previous question about, you know, how are students going to adjust to this new world? A lot of the the university or almost every single education institution is going to have to facilitate more online learning um, and will be for forever. Um, that's not going to change now. You know, exams will highly likely be mostly online. Um, and a lot of the uh, Victorian institutions that I engage with have said they won't go back to, to paper exams or to face-to-face -face exams. So it's something that we will have to live with. Um, and I guess touching on the, the SEPA, obviously that's been a huge boost for the Australia-Indonesia relationship and it came into force on the 5th of July, 2020. Um, while it is obviously not favorable that no one could really travel, uh, you know, to celebrate this significant milestone, it's a milestone nonetheless, and it does uh, bring a lot of, uh, I guess, light to, to this, you know, kind of dark time, because it really does indicate that Australia and Indonesia do want to cooperate with each other more, um, and not just in higher education, also in vocational education. So most of the SEPA actually does, in terms of when it focuses on education, it's focusing on VET. Um, and so Australian institutions can own up to 67% of an institution in Indonesia if they wish to open. Um, I though feel it would probably be relatively unlikely that there would be any sort of vocational colleges that open up in Indonesia, but nonetheless, you can still deliver um, between, you know, AQF level one and level five, and of course, non-accredited accredited courses here in Indonesia. So overall, that's uh, really beneficial. And I, and I think, you know, we're only moving forward in this education space. So hopefully we see more, you know, interaction between Australia and Indonesia because of this. Mm. Tisha, what do you think that Australian campuses operating in Indonesia will mean for your students? Um, I think uh, opening a branch campus in other countries is not really a new idea for Australian universities. Um, uh, it's been done for years. For example, University of Wollongong, where I studied uh, masters, uh, have uh, has many campuses in other parts of the world, including Dubai. And I think this will be the first for an Australian um, university to open a branch in Indonesia. Um, in terms of sending students to overseas countries, I think one of the most expensive items is living expenses. And I think by having uh, a branch in Indonesia really cut that off and make it more affordable for Indonesian students, students to experience um, studying in um, uh, top-notch uh, universities such as Monash. Uh, but I would also say from Indonesian student perspectives, I think most people, most Indonesian students would still prefer to go to Melbourne to actually study in a Melbourne, cam uh, Melbourne campus. Um, yeah, just um, because of the, the, the experience of uh, living overseas um, to actually be there and experience being in Australia in Melbourne is of course different uh, with uh, different when you are in Indonesia so yeah um, and uh, I really support the idea of um, making uh, education more affordable so this idea uh, I really I really support this idea I think it really goes in line with what the United Nations want uh, to make affordable education for everyone yeah.
that's for me, Mira. Fantastic. Um, well, let's leave it there for the main discussion, guys. And now just a moment for everyone to talk about where we can find out more. Shall we, uh, shall we start with you, Pat, Adrian? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'm sure uh, a lot of you already know that we, if you want to know more about Achichis, please visit our website, achichis.edu.au, and just spread the word. Uh, if you've been through the experience, you know, please uh, encourage your other students to participate. You know, currently, we're, we'll, soon we'll be announcing that we're going to be offering online programs. Uh, applications will be open, uh, and it will be fully funded. We have just got the green light from NCP to recalibrate our grants to Deliver, a virtual delivery program. So, so that's really good news for us. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I think I think the Achichis model just works because we're offered we're we're able to offer sustainable programs. You know, like if it was just an MOU between like Monash and Kajabada, for example. You know, like and you'll and they only send one student. It'd be very hard to sustain that type of program. But since we're a consortium, uh, we're gonna constantly deliver a certain number of students uh, at any one time to to the university and maintain uh, in-country staff at that same time. So I guess another thing is I think it would be good to learn cultural competence early on, not when you're a professional and you're here to visit on a business trip and trying mm -hmm. to negotiate a very important deal with an international stakeholder. You know, you need to know the nitty gritty of, of how to, you know, just to engage with Indonesians, you know, it's not, it's, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to say that, you know, it's difficult, but you know, it's something that you really need to experience in order to understand. Uh, again, another obvious is where we are Australia's closest partner, the largest economy in Southeast Asia, you know, uh, so I think, What's stopping you? You know, I think I think it's, it, it would be great to further strengthen ties between uh, our two great countries uh, because currently, and I hope that SEPA will really open this up for us. You know, I think uh, I'm, I have a lot of optimism for this deal, and I just hope that post COVID that there will be real uh, real activities that will that will be able to further increase the you know the engagement between our two countries. Mm, you heard it here first, everyone. Achichis online. <laughs> Clarice? Yeah, um, I just say there's a couple of websites that you can go to to find out more about what the Victorian government does internationally. We have 23 offices around the world and three in Southeast Asia, soon to be four, one in Vietnam that's opening up, um, which would be really exciting because, you know, we do have a, a huge focus on Southeast Asia and, and Indonesia is our, our head office. So, I'll chuck in the chat uh, some of our websites that you can go to. So there's global.vic.gov.au, studymelbourne.vic.gov.au and skills.vic.gov.au. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, if you want to just become involved in Australia Indonesia, um, obviously you can contact Cozindi and you can also contact the Australia Indonesia Youth Association and there's other associations like Pepe, uh, um, you know, that allow you to sort of engage with the community. We were just talking about, you know, before, how do you touch base with Australians and Indonesians? And it's actually through, you know, these types of organizations, not necessarily through, you know, formal education or, or your workplace or something. So um, you can definitely uh, reach out to those organizations uh, to find out further info. Fantastic, thank you. Tisha. 
Um, yeah, I, I just typed in, so um, you can definitely visit us on our website, so sagufoundation.org, and um, I, uh, you, if you want to stay updated with what we do, you can uh, follow us on Instagram and also Facebook, and um, Sagu is currently preparing a program with um, the government, uh, and hopefully next week um, we can publish uh, the info to uh, public, and um, I'm not really supposed to say anything right now i need to <laughs> have clearance for that so that's what i can say um and um i also want to say hi to kakarode um so she's been very supportive to what we do and um it's it, it's very important for um a small organization like stagu to have uh supportive people around us and kakarode is definitely one of them and um yeah uh so thank you so that's how to follow sagu foundation thank you mm, beautiful wow well i think we'll leave it there folks obviously everyone knows where to find information about course Indy, otherwise you wouldn't be here um, but yeah, do spread the word and, and do check out and engage um, even more than you probably already are with all of the excellent organisations that are out there. If no one has anything further to add, then I would just like to thank you all so much um, for coming on today's panel and for speaking at such length and with such wonderful insight and experience uh, to the incredible significance of the Indonesia-Australia relationship and the ways in which that we can build that moving forwards. I would just like to remind everyone again that this talk will be recorded and available in podcast form too. So if you think you know someone who would love to hear more, do pass that on to them. We'll, we will let you know when it's available. Um, and most of all, just a huge thank you to the volunteer team at Course Indy for helping to make this event happen and the future ones. I think we'll leave it there. Thank, thank you. you so thank you, Course Indy. Thank you, Mira. Thank you, Course Indy. Thanks, Mira, for moderating. Bye. Bye, everyone. Beautiful.